be in the house of God together. You are a great God who has made your bride ready. That means you've prepared us, Lord, to be your bride. We're dressed in white. Our sins are washed away. What an opportunity to gather, Lord, to worship our great God and King, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we never take our gathering for granted. May we never forsake it as the Bible warns us not to. Lord, in these days that are continuing to grow evil, Lord, more the reason to be close and tied in to the brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, as we unite and encourage one another, Lord. Father, we thank you that you still have a bright, shining church, a gospel in this very, very dark world. And yet, Lord, your people have lived in a dark world since the fall. And so, Lord, as we were reminded of that today, strengthen us. Strengthen us to be encouraged that you love to save people out of a dark world. And you love to say, such were some of you. And so, Lord, as we look at these verses today, engage our hearts and minds with the text, and may we be full of gratitude that you've saved us from our sins. Thank you for our missionaries around the world, Lord. Be with them today. For those who are hurting or sick, those who have lost loved ones these last past weeks, Lord. Oh, we pray you'd bring comfort to them. All this in Jesus' name. Amen. J.C. Ryle said this, he said, How can that man suppose he is ready to meet Christ, who never takes any trouble to pour his heart out to him in private prayer as a friend? And how can he be satisfied with saying over a string of words every morning in the name of prayer, but, but sacredly know nothing about them? How could that man be happy in heaven forever, who finds Sunday dull and gloomy and tiresome? Who knows nothing of hearty prayer and praise and cares nothing about what is heard and preached from the pulpit and scarcely listens to a sermon. <laughs> Old J.C. Ryle was a great preacher in the late 1900s, and he, he shot pretty straight. He wrote in one of his books that, how can man think that he would go to heaven where he never enjoys Christ in the church here on earth? Why would he expect to be with the Lord? Well, life is troubling, isn't it? There's a lot of difficult things going on out there. As I study this text this week, it, it, show, it shows me that we live in a very dark time. But then I got thinking, we've always lived in a dark time since the fall. And we're going to look at that to remind ourselves. But there's a time to put away things. Let me start with a passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. Turn with me there. This will be our introduction and then we'll jump back into our text. 1 Peter chapter 4. We live in a dark world, brothers and sisters. It's not easy. And yet there is hope. And there's time to put things away that are not part of God's spiritual kingdom and certainly will not be part of his physical kingdom. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... That's a beautiful saying, isn't it? He came and added to his deity full flesh, right? He was just like us, fully human, but yet fully God... Then he says, because that's true, arm yourself also with the same purpose, 
because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So it's time to live for God, not for your flesh. Now he's writing to the church, right? This is the church that's scattered abroad. Persecution has hit the church hard. First Peter is written to the dispersion, right? And so he says, yes, there's, there, there's the great example of Jesus Christ who suffered in the flesh. He's beat sin. We've, we have the ability now to, to live not for the flesh because sin has been overcome. And there's time to put that aside because of the will of God. Now look at verse 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you, have to been, for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, or pagans might be the word. Having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing, and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Now, isn't that interesting? <laughs> he said, you had a time where you pursued your flesh. And you go, well, Scott, I don't know if I did all that. Well, let me tell you, you were totally capable of doing all that. And you probably did it all in your heart and mind. So he said, there was, there was plenty of time for that, right? Verse 4, in all this, they are surprised now because there's a big change in you. Look, they, the world, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. They can't believe what happened to you. Have you ever been back to your high school reunion or ran into an old friend before you were saved? And you have a conversation with them and they go, what happened to you? <laughs> And pretty soon the world doesn't like it. Look, the Lord, the, when the Lord saved you, he took you from the world. And they don't like it, do they? And they're surprised that you don't run with them. Notice that in verse 4. You don't run with them anymore. Verse 5, but they will give an account of him. They'll give an account to him, to God, right? Who is, all, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, see, they may judge you and, and, and badger you because you won't run with them anymore. But God is ready to judge them. Verse 6, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That's, that's, that ties you right back to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, people are dead in their sins. This isn't a prayer for the dead or any of those foreign views that people try to interpret this. It's talking about people who are not alive in Christ. For the gospel has been, for this purpose, has been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh of men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So the gospel gets preached to dead people who do dead things, and God makes them alive. Isn't that true of us? The gospel was preached to us who were dead in our sins, and by the will of God, he's made it alive. And then Peter says this, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. We are living in a world that wants us back. And it will do everything it can take of its view of marriage, gender, all those things will push hard into the church, hard into the Bible-believing uh, church to try to get back what it's lost. But we know, we know the will of God is for us to live for Him. And He will judge those things. Well, as you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to go back this morning and look at 9, 10, and 11 in kind of a unique way. 
Uh, last week, uh, we had a lot of things going on in the service, and I ended up feeling like I rushed through these last few verses. So I want to sit down in these a little bit and talk about life and where we're at today and wh- where, where the church was at then and, and how dark things were at times. And so let me give, walk you through a few thoughts in this passage. First, a righteous church in an unrighteous world. There's a righteous church, that would be all those who God says, these are my children, my son's blood has covered them, I've made them righteous. They live in an unrighteous world. Well, notice when you look at verse 9, for the third time, Paul says, or do you not know? Or do you not know? See, it's an unrighteous world, and, and in an unrighteous world, our hearing can get dulled. We can hear all the rhetoric on the news. We can hear all the the stuff that's going on in the school systems. We can hear all the stuff the government's pressing on, what they want to do to their people. And we can have dull hearing. The church constantly needs reminders. When I thought about this this week, I thought, Lord, we constantly remind ourselves of the goodness of God. And I think this is what Paul is doing here. For the third time, Paul has said, look, don't you know? See, he's reminding these truths repeatedly. And this is, this is the way the scriptures work. Romans chapter 15, verse 15, Paul said this, but I have written you very boldly to you on some points as to remind you again because of the grace of God that was given to me. To remind you again, this is the theme of scripture. 1 Corinthians 4, 17, we saw a few weeks ago. For this reason I sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, listen to this, that he will remind you of my ways. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, Therefore I always am ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been, you've been established in the truth which is presented, present within you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir up again a reminder. Jude chapter five, chapter 1 verse 5, now I desire to remind you, though you know these things once and for all. See, the Bible is constantly reminding us. And it was a good reminder for me to, to read that this week because I thought, you know, is the Bible still precious to the people who hear it? Is the gospel gotten old? Is, is it good to be reminded that God saved us out of these wicked things that we see in verse 9 and 10, that he, he brought us out of those things? Is it good to know that? I think indeed it is. Now, notice in this verse, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the context of unrighteous here is where these two sinners, these two, excuse me, these two men who are sinning against each other have gone to the unrighteous court to solve their problems. Remember that last week. But the term unrighteous is, is, is easily interpreted. It's those who, have, who are left in their sins. It's those who have not experienced Jesus Christ into salvation. It's those who don't have his righteousness. They only have their flesh. And so the righteous, and there's a contrast here going on, the righteous are those who by God's grace through the finished work of Christ have have received the imputed righteousness of Christ and not their own. And that's what the Bible reminds us all the time. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made Jesus, God made Jesus, him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So there's an imputation of sin upon Jesus. And then the Bible says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so there's an imputation of righteousness. 
So what Paul is doing, he's making a direct connection between the unrighteous world that these two sinning brothers have turned to with their former position. This is what you used to be. And unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the clear marker is the righteousness of Christ. That's the clear marker. When our dear brother John passed away here a week ago or so, we just had a service yesterday. The only way he got in to the kingdom of God, the only way those angels came and met him and Christ brought him into the kingdom of God is because he was not dressed in his own righteousness. He was dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And you can see that, can't you? Welcome in, my son. You're dressed in my son's righteousness. To you I offer the entire kingdom. John would have heard those words. But you can imagine the day when there'll be so many who will find themselves entering a different gate, a, a gate of eternal judgment. That's the blatant God-hater. One that laughs at the Bible, who mocks the truth of the Scriptures, they will find themselves at a different gate of eternal judgment. But the social do-gooder will be right there with them. The one who thought, hey, I've done all these things. I give to this, I give to that. I've done all these things. They will find themselves at the gate of eternal judgment. And then the religious zealot. The one who is puffed up. The one who thought they've done the right things. They've said the right things. They ate the right things. They did the right things. They didn't go where this person go. They did all those things. And they will be at that gate as well because they did not find themselves in Christ's righteousness. They actually found themselves in their own And brothers and sisters, friends, if you stand before God in your own righteousness, you're going to hell. That's what this text is about. This is who goes there. And though there are these evidences that are in their life, fornication and idolatry and adulteress and so forth, here these are evidences in their life, this is their own righteousness. And they will be condemned by it. Like many today... I think there were religious zealots and religious people in Paul's day. And they thought of themselves that they they should reach some heavenly state because of the things they have done. But Paul says, look, understand the gospel. The gospel opposes sin. The gospel presents sin to you and and, and makes sin heinous and, and God glorious. And look. Society has accepted what God has rejected. We've got to think through that. Society has accepted what God has rejected. And this is why he says, "Don't, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit this. You've accepted and come to God in your sin, and he cannot, he cannot take you into his kingdom of God. I think even today, most people that know the Bible know the Bible is clear on sexual principles. Now, many don't like the Bible's view on sexuality, and certainly they fail to see God's gracious instruction for them to keep them physically from harm and <laughs> clearly from eternal damnation. And yet, today we continue to experience what many have called a sexual revolution where society is throwing off Christian principles of morality and sexuality. They continue to throw it off. 
They're trying to teach it to our youngest children. In fact, these things that were once forbidden in our society, right, are now openly celebrated, openly celebrated on social platforms and government entities. Things that were considered, even in my short life, unthinkable, are now labeled, listen to this, as natural, they call it natural and good for society. And the problem is, so-called Christians are increasingly accepting a lifestyle that God promises to judge. Isn't that amazing? The so-called church in America is accepting now the things God promised to judge. See, this is what Paul's concerned with here. He's concerned that, that this righteous church, these people who have been declared righteous, are being affected by an unrighteous world. The world's always pressing in on us, isn't it? One of my sermons not too long ago, I said, in reality, God came across the enemy line, took us from the father of lies, and made us his, adopted us into his family, and Satan wants us back. Now, if we're truly saved, he can't have us. We can't lose our salvation because God saved us. But he fights like hell because that's where he's from and going to get us back. That's what he does. I think sometimes we're shocked at what we see. Paul later on, in fact, his last inspired letter wrote this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1-4, through 4, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. Malice gossips, without self-control, brooder, listen to this, haters of God, excuse me, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's where mankind is. And we are the church of Jesus Christ right in the middle of all that. See, this is nothing new. This is what happened at the fall. Second thought. The majority of the world will not inherit the kingdom of God. The majority of the world will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The majority of the world is not saved. To some, that might be a stark reality, but it isn't hard to study the scriptures. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 6. See, the fall of man, when man fell into sin, it hit hard. It hit so hard that the first generation of people, kids, one slew his brother. Recently in my study in Leviticus, when it came across that word to slay the animal, we were reminded that that's the same word the Bible says that Cain did to Abel. It was this Cain, in his blackness of his heart, completely fallen into depravity. There was not a, a trickle-down effect. The minute man fell, he was fully depraved. Cain looks at God and says, you want a sacrifice and you don't want to accept the way I want to come? I'll give you a sacrifice. And he uses the same word to slay his brother. And that's what he did. So immorality quickly took over mankind and had it in his death grip. 
By the time you get to Genesis 6, this is what the Bible says, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of, God, sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. I'm going to come back to 3 and 4 there. Let me drop down to 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now listen to the depth of this. And that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. There's no room. The Hebrew phraseology that's in that phrase there is, is something they would use of a cup that was full, and if you just poured more, there's no more room, right? It just spilled over the side. There's no room for good. That's the teaching of depravity. Depravity teaches that there's not some little spot in your heart where God left some goodness to choose Jesus. Depravity says we are absolutely 100% corrupted by sin. And you might be six. <laughs> now, this story here, think about this. And I want to help you understand the majority of the world will reject Jesus Christ and not inherit the kingdom of God. This story takes place 1,500 to 1,700 after, years after the creation of Adam. And the Bible records very accurately generational records. Um, and, and it's not hard to study. And there's men and women who've worked very hard to understand these timelines. And by the time we get to Noah's son, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, who are born in a very large population. In fact, Henry Morris in his book called Biblical Cosmology and Modern Science says, assuming the current population growth figures in normal conditions, there could have been upwards to 3 billion people living on the earth by the time of Genesis 6. And listen, I've messed around with the math. When people are living seven, eight, nine hundred years and you start thinking about having babies and stuff, it, it adds up quickly. And though we don't understand the exact figures here, we do understand that God's design for reproduction is in full swing, but what's come with it is depravity, and man is wicked. Verse 1 tells us that reproduction was important to God. When Noah got off the ark, he said, fill the, ark, fill, fill the world, multiply and fill the world, fill the earth. And so it takes females to, to have reproduction. I know this isn't hard to understand, but somewhere our world is losing the gender battle. The role of women has always been important to God. He chose women to birth children, to fill his glorious world where someday will be filled with all believers as after judgment takes place in this a new heavens and earth, all will, all will worship God, and God chose to bring us into life through a woman. What an amazing high calling. And if that wasn't enough, he chose a woman to bring Jesus Christ into this world. And yet our society hates the role of genders. And they're trying to do away with it. As we get to the record here in Genesis 5... We realize that there's 10 generations of men that they look at that perpetuate life, right? But none of that happens without women. And this was God's plan. And I think in modern man's stupidity to remove gender and marriage and embrace homosexuality 
and just implode a human race shows their depravity, isn't it? Now, the reason is, is because they desire self-gratification. And when you're left to yourself and you don't have at least the moral view of the biblical truth of gender and marriage and so forth, you choose self-gratification through any way that would bring you pleasure. And I think this is what's happening. Men are looking upon women, they're procreating, then you got a demonic role probably here in three and four um, that's going on with that. There's demons that have left heaven, were kicked out. Second Peter addresses these demons. And there is pervasive, godless immorality upon the earth. It isn't hard to study this text and realize that verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And by the way, he takes seven other people on the ark. And if we're even close to that two to three billion people on there, that's not a lot of people coming through one door for salvation. That's what the ark was. The ark was a picture of Jesus Christ, wasn't it? You come one way, there's no other way to be saved from eternal destruction. And I, if you come my way through that door, I will shut you in, I will protect you, and I will hold you above judgment. And I'll judge everything else. See, the Bible is very clear. Most won't inherit the kingdom of God. As we look at this passage, we begin to understand it's probably best reflected in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Here it says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. You want to know where homosexuality comes from? It wasn't produced by man in the, in the sense that they thought this was a, a good alternative lifestyle. The Bible says God gave them over to the degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is, is unnatural. It's not what God designed. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural affection of women and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts, receiving, listen to this, in their own person's due penalty of their error. See, this is a result of depravity. This is a result of the unredeemed world living without the restraint of God's biblical morality. We see in verses 1 and 2 that their sinful behavior is described in the narrative because God responds to it in verse 3. Notice what he says in verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. So you kind of think, hey, they're multiplying, they're doing what God says in verse 1 and 2, and, and the sons of God, we've got to figure out those are, I think they're demonic forces, this is the Nephilim, we'll, we can talk about that later, come in, and now there's demonic depression in, in among the people because they're living in sin and attracting that demonic lifestyle. And then the Lord in his graciousness says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Because he is also flesh, nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. And so now we see here that most likely there was this obsession with sex and immorality and giving very little or no thought to what pleases God. And God says, look, I'm watching. 
And I think just like the Spirit of God hovered over the newly formed creation, the Spirit of God is watching God's creation mock Him. And God said, I'm only going to strive for a little while longer. Three, our gracious, patient God will judge. And that's what we see in verse 3, don't we? He says, nevertheless, His days shall be 120 years. I'm going to give them time. The passage there back in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, you can see the future tense. They will not inherit the kingdom. There's a future tense. There's a God who, who, is, who is marked by patience. See, God sees all of mankind's sin. It's ever before him. He's a God that, that is not bound by time. So the past, present, and future is right here in front of his face. He sees all actions. Everything we've done is right in front of him. Unless his son has forgiven it. And then he chooses never to bring it up. For the rest of the world, it is all in his face. He sees it all. But he also loves his creation. And as he did with Adam and Eve, he was kind with them. He put them out of the garden because he didn't want them to get to that tree of life and live in eternal sinful state. So he puts them out of the garden. Cain, who did this heinous crime, he protects him for a while. See, God is kind and allows people to repent of sin. Ezekiel said it this way, chapter 18, verse 32, speaking for God, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Peter said it this way, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness, but his patience towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's his goal. He waits because he has a plan for our life. He doesn't bring judgment. Friends, it is not hard to think of sin in our own life. If we were not saved, God would have the right to take our life. That's how we understand the Bible. That's why he's so gracious, isn't he? But I love this because such were some of you, right? So God desires people to repent, to admit their sins and believe in him. But the graciousness of God will not supersede his holiness right? God's attribute of grace is not greater than his holiness. They are perfect, and they they work in perfect harmony. And so God's attributes are equally fulfilled in perfection. Grace will not rob his justice. So God will execute grace. He will execute judgment in perfect harmony with his character. Notice in verse 3, we see this 120 years. And if that wasn't enough, he sends them Noah, the Bible says, who was a preacher of righteousness, Peter calls him. Think about that. There's nobody believing in walking with God on the earth. And what does God do? I'll give you 120 years, and I'll give you a preacher who will tell you about me. See, that's the graciousness of God. And he'll tell you directly what my words are. And yet they mocked Noah. They mocked what he was doing. They mocked salvation. Salvation was in that boat, brothers and sisters. That was the only way you were going to get away from the judgment of God, and they mocked it until judgment began to fall. Well, there's still a battle raging in the hearts and minds of sinful people today. The Spirit is 
still dispensing God's word through the proclamation of truth by people, by preachers and neighbors and Christians. And Satan, the father of lies, is still speaking too, right? He's constantly opposing the word of God and he's leading people towards self-gratification and self-pleasure. That's where he's leading them. He knows they will be condemned with him. And that's because what happens is people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is what Romans is about, right? Romans 1, verse 18, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And pretty soon, to be unrighteous is righteous, and to be righteous is unrighteousness. That's the way the world's going, right? They do this all the time. And so in Romans 1, 24 through 25, the Bible says God gave them over. It's an interesting word. It means he leaves them in their fallen state. You know how scary that is, brother and sisters, brothers and sisters? If God leaves you in your fallen state, just leaves you there. Your life on this earth will be terrible. Your life after this world will be eternally terrible if God leaves you there. See, this is what he does with them. They suppressed his truth, so he leaves them in their lust of their hearts and their impurities, verse 24, Romans 1 says, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And with the result of that is exchange the truth of God for a lie. Oh, God's not a God of gender. Love is love. See, it's all an exchange of truth for a lie. And they will now worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And that creature may be a person, an, idol, an, an, an idolatrous form of something God made. You drop down to Romans 1.20. I know you're still in Genesis, but just listen one twenty-eight, And he says this, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Let me say this. It's not that people say, oh, there's no God. They say, yeah, we'll take our God. We'll design him the way we want. We reject the God of the Bible. That's where most people are at today, at least in America. And so they, they did not see fit to acknowledge God the way God acknowledges himself through his perfect word any longer. And here we come for the third time in this passage. God gave them over to depravity, to depraved mind, to do, now listen to this, to do those things which are not proper. This means God will not rescue them. Now, we have a verse in verse 11 back in our text that tells us such were some of you. God loves to rescue us from our sin. If you are a Christian in this room, you are evidence of that. And you may look at that list, and we'll look at a little more detail here in a moment. But I promise you, the depth of judgment was deserved to every soul in this room. No matter how moralistically you were brought up, we deserve that, and that's the grace of God. Now we look at and go, such were some of you. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Whoa. I was born a liar. 
People tell me all the time, well, I was born homosexual. I was born the wrong gender. I go, well, I was born a liar, so looks like we got some sin problems, and how are we going to deal with it? Just give in to it? Just live it out? Or repent and turn to a God who can forgive? See the difference? In the end, those who refuse to listen and obey God's word comes final judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They don't get in the book. They're not getting into heaven. He was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. Is this not popular today? (laughs) Can you imagine this on CNN? (laughs) That ancient book that sits on your laps is so foreign to the world right now. And yet the Bible says he'll judge the wicked. But God, listen to God, he he loves, he has a desire for people to repent and believe, right? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 11 says. But rather that the wicked would turn from their ways and live. And he cries out in Leviticus 33, 11, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? Oh, God has provided a way to him through his son. Don't miss the graciousness of that. Fourth thought. Don't be deceived by God's graciousness and patience. (laughs) Go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't be deceived by God's graciousness and patience. They say, well, Scott, how can you put deceived in God's graciousness and patience? Because I think there's people who abuse the grace and patience of God. I think that's what Romans 6 is about, right? Oh, we'll just continue in sin because grace, we have grace. We'll just live any way we want. I said the prayer, I walked the aisle, raised the hand, I'm good. What else do I need? Notice in verse 9, middle of it, he says, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or effeminate, or homosexuals, or thieves, nor covetous, or drunkards, or violers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, we're on that list somewhere. I don't care who you are. You're in that list. You may not have done these, but you thought it. Your heart was perfectly capable of doing the most heinous things within that list. But sometimes we, we may think that God doesn't see the wickedness of man. Well, he does. He does see it. And I think Genesis 6, why I took you back there, because I want you to understand God saw it immediate, the moment Adam and Eve rejected God's word and partook what he said not to do. They fell in depravity, and God knew what it was going to cost. He knew at that moment that was going to cost the death of his son and the destructions of billions of people. He understood that. And yet in his graciousness he came. So not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament gives a very clear view how distorted and sinful sexuality was even in the early church. And this very epistle was written to the early church that was involved in a sexual revolution beyond what I think we're in. (laughs) Do Do you understand how bad things were in Corinth? And yet God has a church in there. See, Christian principles that the apostle taught, they would have clashed so hard with the Roman world 
I mean, just think about what he's saying here. Can you imagine them reading this letter out loud in a city degraded with immorality? Don't be deceived. This list of people is not going to have the kingdom of God. They would have called it what? Hate crimes. (laughs) That's what they would have done. See, eventually, sexual immorality of Rome led to its great fall. If you just study your history books, the 300s and and 400s, we saw Rome just plagued with disease. I read several articles and dissertations this week that talked about what it was like in Rome's heyday. They said it was just full of sexual immorality, just rampant disease had, had really destroyed the palace in so many ways. They had mocked the things of God, and and yet now their whole society was falling apart. Men, if they lived past their 30s, thought they had really lived a long life. In many cases. Men were known for their masculinity. Rome was a dominant war machine, and so men became dominant. And they were dominant over women, and they were dominant over slaves. Look what sin's done today. The men of, of the world now are pathetic. I mean, they're weak. They can't lead because this goes against society now. Submission's the most dirty word in the world. And so women now have the power in the world, and men have just become these weak, pathetic men who, you know, sit on the couch and play games or watch sports. See, we're, we're on the same track. But when you get back to this Greco-Roman society, they had a pursuit for beauty. <laughs> I read one dissertation this week of the pursuit for beauty in the Greco-Roman world. For beauty, outward beauty. I mean, there was such a strong pursuit of that, it consumed them. And guess what? When you pursue beauty, and listen, if the barn needs paint, you can put some on there. I understand all that. Um, that's not what I'm talking about here. <laughs> but when you are consumed with your outward appearance and what people think of you, sex, sexual immorality is on the doorstep. And it is not hard to see it in the advertisements and what our world is going, isn't it? And so this Roman world was so caught up in these things. The women were caught up in perfection of beauty. The men were caught up in being strong and decisive. And all was social acceptable. The men were violent. They found it acceptable for a Roman male to immorally be involved with men or women. The homosexual lifestyle was looked down on because the person who played the feminine role was weak. And so they really didn't look at life that way. They looked at life as pleasure, and they pursued it at all levels. It was said that Roman men dominated on the battlefield and dominated in the bedroom, and their wife was just a footstool. One man who wrote a dissertation on this, Matthew Ruger, said the Roman male would have sex with his slaves, whether male or female. He would regularly visit prostitutes. He would have homosexual encounters even while married to a female wife and often have several young boys who were effeminate in both character and speech that were used for his pleasure. 
it was such a twisted way of life that the Romans did not look at people as being homosexual or heterosexual, but rather believed if that they had the power and the strength, they could get any desire fulfilled with men, women, or children. And their conscience was clear. And I will leave out the rest of what I read this week. How bad things were. In the first century, Rome, both men and women were obsessed with beauty and desires and flesh. And God says, Paul, I want to put a church in the middle of that. One will be called the church of Corinth. The other one will be called the church of Rome. And I want you to plant it there. And I want you to boldly proclaim the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to boldly proclaim all that I said. I want you to preach the law under the new covenant. So I want you to tell them what I said in Leviticus about relationships. I want that done. Can you imagine that? I have some friends planning a church in San Francisco. They're very interesting to talk to. There is no room for compromise out there. Everything's been compromised. These men are dedicated to preaching the truth and they are hated. And they'll soon be underground. Well, men were a problem, weren't they? I want to give you just another scenario. My time is running from me. But there was a group in Corinth called the Oracles of Delphi. You should watch a, a history channel on this. History channel, I just watched one a couple months ago on this. They did a very good job. Um, with the oracles of Delphi. These were women. <laughs> there was a group of women that rose up and said, we don't want men anymore. And they began to rise up, uh, not being inferior and being treated like slaves anymore, and they themselves became very robust and very strong. They would run around, and one of the habits they loved to do was go down to the pits, which were called Gehenna, and there, there would be pigs down there, and women with bare-chested and spears would go down and kill pigs and stand on top of them and proclaim their strength over man. <laughs> Many of these women ended up in this religion of Delphi. It was a religion based on visions and, and prophecy uh, and had violent promiscuity to it. This is, this is where the church was. Matthew Ruger again says, to the Roman and the Greek culture, the biblical view would have been absurd. It would have been, it would have been completely disruptive to the social factor and demeaning to their cultural family that they had developed. I, man, I'm reading this, I'm going, we are headed for the same thing. My wife, Gina, submits to her husband as a picture of the church to Christ and she believes it's worshipful. How's that going to fly in the world's court systems? <laughs> See, this is what had gone. So God's word was considered abhorrent, exploitive. They would have seen this as terrible. And men, men, particularly men, husbands and fathers, were to be as picture of Christ and were to provide, protect, and lead while giving themselves up for their wife and children. This would be unfathomable. 
And yet, verse 9, Paul says, don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterous, effeminate homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Effeminate is a problem. There's a new movement, what they're calling non-binary people. Here they try to say that we're neither male nor female unless we decide to be male or female. So guess what they did? They went to the Bible and they said, hey, frogs were neither land animals or water animals, and we're like frogs. And they made this whole argument. There's a bunch of papers they wrote on this, and they're, and they're, and they're so-called Christians that are trying to use frogs in the Bible to say that God made us non-binary, we're neither male nor female, unless we choose to be whatever we want. This is where they're at. But the Bible, (laughs) the Bible gives only two classes of people, male and female. When when Noah put the, the animals on the ark, God said, I'm going to send you Animals, male and female, frogs included. (laughs) This is what he does, right? And so there is never a later scripture that comes along and says there's there's some kind of human fallout and there's some kind of um, non-binary male-female gender class. And if God made humans that were neither male nor female but left the decision of person, he would have told us. God doesn't leave out that kind of details. And certainly we're more than frogs, aren't we? But not one, not one single sentence in scriptures supports an effeminate or binary, non-binary gender view. Then they run to the eunuchs that Jesus spoke about. Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, this is what Jesus said. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. This is where they try to hold this. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there were eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So here's what I wrote. (laughs) So even being born with a physical enormity in your organs does not disqualify you from being male since your sex is determined by your DNA. And whether your body produces sperm or eggs... Ultimately, it was determined by God. So getting castrated does not make a man less, than, uh, less of a male, just like having a mastectomy of a woman less than a female. See, God is so good to us. He knows what we need. And he's good to mankind. And yet mankind is not enough, isn't it? You see why the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God they have even rejected God's creative order. And if they reject God's creative order, they're never going to accept Jesus dying for their sins. Look, we, we all have certain sins that we're tendency in. And I, I know, I know of men who struggle with same-sex attraction. I've counseled with them. 
And these men, listen, I want you to understand this. These men have learned to love Christ. One told me one day, he said, I struggle at times. But God has given me victory over it. And he's also given me a wife. And she knew before, as we started dating, she knew all my struggles. And God put a love in her for me. And she loves me this day. And she helps me. And we are a godly family. We're a husband and wife, male and female, married with three children. And we serve the Lord together. And yes, I do have a struggle at times. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unredeemed humanness that I've tried to beat. And that's where I came up with a line that day. And I said, hey, brother, you know what? I was born a liar. And I struggle with lying. And so I'm a liar. But Christ is bigger and greater. And he frees me and gives me victory over lying. You pick whatever sin. What sin do you struggle with? Think about it. I mean, we want to raise hands? Anybody a liar in here? I mean, probably all got to go up whether you're lying already, right? You either have to... But see, this is what God does. <laughs> Paul's saying, look, there's, there's such hope for you, whether you're caught in a homosexuality or an effeminate or an adulteress or a liar or a cheater or a thief or whatever it is, there is hope for you. God's power is so great. And just in closing, look at our last thought, the power and wisdom of Christ in the kingdom of God. Verse 11, look at all this. For such were some of you. These are some of the greatest statements in scriptures to most of us, Right? We look at that list, and in our, in our legalism, right, we try to dodge some of these. But in the reality, we're guilty. And so when he says, such were some of you, I'm in verse 11. I don't know about you, but I'm there. I've looked upon things I wished I would have. <laughs> Covetous. Everybody gets nailed in that one. Such were some of you. This is a tremendous salvation given to people who once rejected God. It is grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. This is the gloriousness of Jesus Christ. This is what changes people. This is why I believe we believe biblical counseling works. <laughs> this is why we pray for our loved ones who are caught maybe in some of these sins right here. We pray for them because we believe like the Corinthians of this church knew that God rescued people from those same sins. Oh, I find such hope in this. I have family members, friends, caught in many of these right now. And we will not stop praying for them until they die. Because we know that God takes us, which were such of you, and gives us redemption. Notice three times Paul stresses this strong adversative, but you were. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I don't know if there's any correlation to Peter, right? Peter denied Jesus three times and the Lord restores him three times. And he could have picked many more aspects of salvation, but look at the three he did pick. But you were washed. Pastor Brian read this passage. Go to Titus chapter 3. He had no idea it was going to be in this text. But it is a favorite text of many of ours. Titus chapter 3. Verse 3, remember this, he always brings us back to show us where we were 
to, to bring great praise to God. Look at verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves. Remember it said, don't be deceived? Here he changes the word and says, don't be foolish, right? We once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved in various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's a pretty ugly view, isn't it? <laughs> pretty descriptive, isn't it? Pretty much nails humanity. He says, we once were this. Oh, but look at verse 4. Look at that conjunction. I hope you have that but circled in your Bible. Look at this. But. <laughs> oh, heavens, thank the Lord. Because you leave me hating and hating one another. I'm just one of the world, right? Because that's what the world is. They, Democrats hate the Republicans. Republicans hate the Democrats. And they hate the other groups that are not one of them. And they just hate everywhere. And then they say people who really do love people are people who hate. It's so confusing out there, isn't it? But, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, who was that? Jesus. That means the ultimate standard of God's love is completely and fully understood in Jesus Christ. Why would we tell people anything else but the story of Jesus Christ? When he appears, look at verse 5, another great saying, he saved us. So simple, isn't it? Those three little words. He saved us. Save is this great word. We get soteriology from this. We get deliverance from this. He delivered us from all of those sins of, of chapter uh, 6, verse 9 and 10. From all of those. He delivered us from those and much more, didn't he? He saved us. And how did he do it? Well, not based on our deeds. Praise the Lord. Because you would be doing this, right? Well, Boy, I hope I got enough done. I hope he saw that I stopped by, you know, the pregnancy center and dropped some stuff off. <laughs> I hope he saw that. Oh, my goodness, what a terrible life to live in works. Not based on our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but look at that conjunction again. Circle that. According to his mercy, we are saved by the mercy of God, brothers and sisters, by nothing else. By the washing and regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, there's that washing, right? But you were washed. God, listen to this, no matter what your past was, God cleansed you. Lost your virginity? God gave it back to you. I know that's, I know that's harsh. <laughs> that's how God looks at it. Gave something up that you shouldn't have? God gave it back in Jesus Christ. I have counseled with some of the most difficult situations, and I have watched God rescue people from heinous sin because he saved them and washed them. And our job as a church is to look at each other and realize that we've been cleansed. And so we forgive easy and we love easy and we care for each other. That's what we want here at Riverbend. We're washed people. We're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Let's act like it. Give your seats up. Give your life up. Give your money up. Give whatever up for God. He's worth it, isn't he? We're washed. Brian highlighted this. Because when you go into the text... 
he says, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit of God. So being justified by his grace, we would be his heirs. Oh, so you are the inheritors of the kingdom of God. Not the world. You. You're the inheritors of the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. You now get the kingdom of God because he washed you clean. Oh, this is the gospel. This is what we preach. i got to finish. But you are sanctified, the next verse says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men. Then it says this, And the sanctification without it, no one will see the Lord. Look, if God did not set you apart from the world, you do not inherit the kingdom of God. If God does not set you apart, not you, <laughs> well, I, I've been to church all my life. Yeah. You're going to hell. God sets people apart, and we inherit the kingdom of God. That's sanctification. That's initial sanctification. That's for salvation where he says, you're mine. You no longer belong to the father of lies. You belong to me. And then finally, he says, you're justified. Some of the sweetest words in Scripture here, aren't they? Justified declared by God to be righteous forever. Astounding. <laughs> Astounding. Father, this passage is enormous. It's enormously offensive to the lost. But to the saved, it's full of grace and mercy beyond measure that you reconciled us from such depravity. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you that you've given your son's life for us and given us, granted us, gifted us his righteousness so we can be righteous forever. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? I want to read you something that accidentally got into my notes, and I want it to be our benediction. Last night I was here late, finishing up, and as I was finishing writing the sermon, I had used my, uh, my Word document I can dictate into it, and sometimes I dictate quotes into it and stuff, and I had left it on. And when I was reading through my notes late last night, just the last before I closed my laptop to go home, I found this saying that I had said, and I, I, I'm not trying to do anything but just share with you what the grace of God does. I must have been praying while I was closing out and reading this, and it picked it up, and it says, it's right in my notes, I can't do this on my own, Lord. You will just have to help me again and again and again and again. I went to delete it. And then I thought, those are the most innocent words I wrote in the whole sermon. <laughs> I was just praying, Lord, I'm out of strength. I've done a funeral today. I've preached all week. We've had some difficult issues. I have no strength left. You're going to have to help me. You're going to have to do it again and again and again. See, this is the mark of a believer if you're struggling, 
go asking for help. Quit trying to do this on your own. Go to the Lord again and again and again with a right heart, and he will uphold you. Amen? You are dismissed.